Section 32 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15. The Fall of the Whigs, Part 1. Ever since the breaking off of the peace conferences at The Hague in the spring of 1709, secret negotiations had been carried on between the French and the peace party in Holland. In the beginning of 1710, Louis XIV once more made overtures for peace, and though the Allies still distrusted his sincerity and made active preparations for war, it was decided to hold a conference at Gertrudenberg to take his proposals into consideration. Louis XIV declared himself ready to make any sacrifices for peace if only he could preserve some fragment of the Spanish monarchy as a kingdom for his grandson and could escape from the obnoxious condition of aiding with his own arms to turn him out of Spain. But the conduct of the French in the course of these negotiations had made the Allies more than ever doubtful of their sincerity. They knew that in spite of his professions to the contrary, Louis XIV still continued to encourage his grandson and promise him help. Austria, moreover, was fully determined to continue the war, until the entire Spanish monarchy was handed over to Charles. The distress of the French was such that the English government expressed themselves confident that peace would be concluded, but the deliberations came to nothing, and the French ascribed their failure mainly to Austria, whose ambition, once fairly aroused, passed all bounds. The Duke of Marlborough acted throughout as the mouthpiece of his government, he spoke of himself as a white paper on which they could write their wishes. His letters betray his keen consciousness of his gradual loss of favor. He could no longer order everything freely as he would, but met with opposition on every side, so that he tried to confine himself as much as possible to his immediate duties as captain general. As soon as it became clear that the negotiations would lead to nothing, Eugène and Marlborough at once began the active business of the campaign. A great effort was to be made in the Netherlands, with a view of preparing everything for an invasion of France, and at the same time the Duke of Savoy was to enter France from Piedmont, with the hope of stirring up the disaffected Protestants in Dauphiné to aid the Allies. Marlborough began the campaign in bad spirits. I am so discouraged by everything I see, he wrote to his wife, that I have never during this war gone into the field with so heavy a heart as I do at this time. I own to you that the present humors in England give me a good deal of trouble, for I cannot see how it is possible they should mend till everything is yet worse. His object was to take such fortresses as yet remain to the French on their northern frontier. He began with the siege of Douai, the possession of which would be of the greatest importance to him, for there was water communication from it the whole way to Amsterdam, and if they held it, the Allies would be able to get their supplies brought by water from Amsterdam and stored at Douai for future enterprises. Marlborough found the sufferings of the wretched peasantry on the French border greater even than in the year before. He writes, It is impossible without seeing it to be sensible of the misery of this country. At least one half of the people of the villages since the beginning of last winter are dead, and the rest look as if they came out of their graves. It is so mortifying that no Christian can see it, but must with all his heart wish for a speedy peace. And again he writes, 
The churches and the villages are full of the poor country people, the greatest part of them being sick, and most of the towns being infected with a spotted fever. It is no wonder that the Allied generals, when they saw this misery, thought that no terms were too exorbitant to ask Louis the Fourteenth in return for the blessing of peace. In spite of Villars' boasts, the French were unable to prevent the capture of Douai. During the siege, Marlborough was much disturbed by the news which reached him from England. Some of the leading Whigs, afraid of the intrigues of Harley and Mrs. Masham, had earnestly pressed the Duchess of Marlborough to return to town after the Duke's departure to aid them with her influence. Sunderland wrote to the Duke, Without her, I know we shall all sink. The great difficulty was to get the treasurer to act like a man, and it was well known that the Marlboroughs were the only people who could possibly stir up the timid Godolphin to show any decision. But it would doubtless have been better to keep the Duchess out of town if possible. She was not likely to do anything to smooth matters with the Queen. She intended to resign her offices at the conclusion of a peace, when the Duke would be free to enjoy a little leisure with her, and she wished to feel sure that the Queen would keep her promise of transferring in that case her offices to her daughters. Anne tried to evade her request, and when the Duchess pressed her for an answer, she said, I desire that I may never be troubled any more on the subject. Disgusted at the continual slights she received, the Duchess retired again to the country, and in spite of the entreaties of her Whig friends, refused for some time to come to court. Her enemies took the opportunity of blaming her for neglecting her duties, and spread stories of the disrespectful language which she used about the Queen. She found it impossible to stay quiet long, and give people occasion to say that her favour was entirely lost, and early in April she appeared at court again and demanded an interview with the Queen. Anne tried hard to escape a private meeting. She put it off on various pretexts, and begged the Duchess to put what she had to say in writing. But the Duchess was remorseless. She wrote saying that all she had to say related to her own vindication, and that she would ask for no answer from the Queen. This letter she followed to Kensington without waiting for an answer, and sent the page of the back stairs to ask whether she might be admitted. Whilst he was gone, she sat down in the window, waiting, as she says, like a Scotch lady with a petition expecting an answer, whilst the Queen doubtless consulted with Mrs. Masham. At length she was admitted, and the interview must have been sufficiently comic. The Duchess was all tears and passion, the Queen was sullen and obstinate. Whilst the Duchess justified her conduct in passionate words, the Queen looked contemptuous and impatient, and remarked at any pause in the flow of words, you can put it in writing. When tired of this remark, she next repeated at intervals, you desired no answer, and you shall have none. At last, when the storm could not be stopped, she said, I will quit the room. But the Duchess followed, bursting into floods of tears, and continued her vindication, to which the Queen rejoined as before, you desired no answer, and you shall have none. At last, beside herself with passion, the Duchess exclaimed, I am confident you will suffer in this world or the next for so much inhumanity. The Queen retorted with indignation, That is my business, and withdrew. The poor Duchess had to sit down and dry her tears by herself, 
and after a while scratched at the queen's door to say that if it pleased the queen she would not go to her lodge at windsor as long as the queen was at the castle but the queen answered through the door that she might come if she pleased it would give her no uneasiness this was the last personal interview between them at this time the whigs were kept in constant alarm by rumours of an approaching dissolution of parliament and of changes in the government the queen was determined to show that she was no longer kept in bondage by marlborough and godolphin and would act for herself without consulting the treasurer she dismissed the whig lord chamberlain appointing the earl of shrewsbury in his stead shrewsbury had been a long while on the continent and had come back to england with an italian wife he had been cautiously watching the party conflicts to see which side it would be wisest to join and whilst professing friendship for marlborough had allowed himself to be gained over by harley godolphin ventured to remonstrate with the queen but when he saw that she meant to have her own way both he and the other whigs determined to put up with this affront and persuaded marlborough to do the same next the queen bade the duke give promotion to colonel masham and colonel hill mrs masham's husband and brother marlborough with some reluctance consented to promote colonel masham but the queen insisted with all the more obstinacy upon the promotion of hill also because she had had before to give way on this point and marlborough was obliged to yield for he saw that the whigs would not support him in a refusal the whigs were determined to cling to power as long as possible they hoped to temporize above all to put off the dissolution they even submitted tamely when at last the long dreaded blow was struck and sunderland was dismissed from office and succeeded as secretary of state by the earl of dartmouth a zealous tory the queen had always disliked sunderland and his conduct in an office which brought him into frequent personal contact with herself had increased her distaste for his violent arrogant temper marlborough could not but feel the disgrace of his son-in-law as a blow aimed at himself he hoped at least to defer it and wrote in a letter to be shown to the queen what i desire is that she would be pleased to defer the removal of lord sunderland till the end of this campaign and then she may have the winter before her to take measures with the allies for the command of this army this is what i beg in reward of all my faithful services if it must be otherwise and that nothing but my immediate retiring will content those that have at this time the power i must submit with the satisfaction that everybody must be sensible of my readiness to have served if it might have been allowed with honour but harley's intrigues were too much for the duke he himself talked over such wigs as he could and made the queen talk over summers divided by jealousies and suspicions the whigs had no common policy and shared only the desire to keep an office if possible godolphin was terrified at the thought that the duke might carry out his intention of resignation and at a meeting of the ministers he suggested that a memorial should be drawn up and sent to him begging him to retain his command for the good of his country this was done and signed by all the ministers except shrewsbury and somerset whom harley had gained over it was not difficult to persuade marlborough he had already made up his mind not to let his personal matter make him do anything which might be harmful to the common cause he attempted to regard the disgrace of sunderland as having no bearing upon himself it is clear that the position held by him during the first years of anne's reign when he controlled every appointment and was consulted on every detail was anomalous 
and could not possibly last, but this did not make it easier to bear the gradual loss of power and the curtailment of his authority to what belonged to him as captain-general. His letters are full of despondency and disgust with the state of affairs. A new quarrel between the Queen and the Duchess did not tend to make matters better. The Duchess could not let the disgrace of Sunderland pass. She sent one of her angry letters to the Queen, blaming her in her usual disrespectful manner for the favour shown to Mrs. Masham, and hoping to make mischief between the Duke of Somerset and the Queen, she sent an old letter in which Somerset had spoken of the Queen with very little ceremony, and judged from this that the Duchess would not scruple if it served her purpose to publish abroad the tender letters which in former days Mrs. Morley had written to Mrs. Freeman. She therefore demanded that the Duchess should send back to her all her strange scrawls. This the Duchess refused to do in a violent letter, to which the Queen sent no answer, and after this there was no more direct correspondence between them. End of section 32